0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing. I'm your host, Meg Durham, Wellbeing Speaker and Teacher Wellbeing Specialist. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and waters on which this podcast is being recorded. Hello and welcome to episode 116. Working in education, we quickly come to learn as humans, we're all unique. A task that seems effortless for one student or staff member can cause distress and overwhelm for another. In today's episode, I have the joy of chatting with Marianne Power about neurodivergence in the adult population and how we can create more neuro-inclusive schools that thrive on differences. Marianne, also known as Maz to her friends and colleagues, is a clinical psychologist, executive coach for neurodivergent leaders, and an award-winning entrepreneur. Her academic research explores the individual, cultural and environmental conditions that unlock human potential and activate transcendent emotions and outputs such as creativity, awe, joy, purpose, belonging, meaning and mattering. Marianne is the host of a podcast, Classroom 5.0, interviewing today's leading experts on topics related to the future of work, leadership and education. And in her lived experience of raising two twice exceptional children and her late diagnosis of the same unique neurodivergent profile, combined with her deep academic knowledge and neurodivergent affirming practices, makes her a sought-after contributor to inclusive change initiatives and events. In this conversation we discuss, what does it mean to be neurodivergent? The benefits of a neurodiverse workplace? why curiosity and compassion are paramount, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marianne Power. Maz, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here because I have been listening and watching from the sidelines with just such admiration for the work that you've been doing, Meg. So this is a long overdue conversation that's happened in my head. I can't wait to see where we go together.
0: feel like we're going to go on a bit of a ride. And what we're really going to be talking about today is neurodivergence in adults and how we can create neuro-inclusive schools that thrive on differences. Why do you think this is an important topic for teachers and school leaders to have in mind? What's the really exciting piece behind that question
1: is that I probably underestimated how important teachers as school leaders were seeing this topic and thought that there might need to be a little bit of a push into education as I started to raise my own awareness around the topic and what I've seen is the absolute reverse. I think educators are so uniquely placed to see what's happening in the school environment and the children around them and to notice with a lens of curiosity. This meant that in so many ways they've actually been ahead of the game in terms of recognising some of the unique differences that pop up within our neurodivergent population and so in doing so there's been this ripple effect of the adults in school communities and also saying so we be supporting these kids and learning all about how we can embrace their differences and provide neuroinclusive environments for learning. What about workplace environments? For our teachers and what about how do we support our neurodivergent parents in our community so it's just been this beautiful evolution and quite a quick one actually probably thanks to social media and the awareness that's being raised more publicly and more universally around neurodiversity yeah it's been a really interesting education-led query that is just a beautiful of a journey to be involved in
0: Yes, it's beautiful to think about that evolution from really focusing on the student to then getting curious about the adults around. And I know for so many adults, it's not until they're working with someone, they're like, oh, I'm really on their wavelength. Oh, this is a bit curious here. Like what I'm learning about them is actually starting to inform myself about certain things. And for parents, when they're working with their children, they think, oh, hang on, this feels very familiar as we're learning. So to kick things off, what is, neurodivergence yeah great question i think language
1: really does matter. I'm going to put a little bit of disclosure statement out there first and foremost is that there is a little bit of contention in the community and wide abroad and differences in definitions. So this is my take on a lot of the definitions. But if we think about neurodiversity start there, I kind of liken the term neurodiversity to have done for neurodevelopmental differences. And we'll get to neurodivergence in a sec in the same way that Seligman helped bring positive psychology to the forefront for psychology. Right. So neurodiversity is kind of this term used celebrate the idea that when we have neurodivergence or neurodevelopmental differences, we can give some specific examples of what they look like. The yes, there are some impairments that we really want to speak to, but actually it's more than that. It's about moving beyond the medicalized model and moving beyond the stigma that it comes with those different barriers, if you like, or struggles that people have. And looking actually, towards a person more holistically, you know, what are their strengths and how do they present themselves in the world in a way that maybe is different to neurotypical, but that can be celebrated. So that's kind of that neurodiversity paradigm that Judy Singer brought about in the 1990s to really celebrate neurodevelopmental differences more holistically. Then neurodivergence refers to all of the different neurodevelopmental profiles that we see. So if someone says I am neurodivergent, they might be referring to a whole host of different brain-based differences is a way I like to sort of Think of it. So they can include things like autism, ADHD, giftedness, Tourette's. There's a whole host. We can go into those a little bit later. But those definitions can be a little bit confusing if you're new to this space. And I always just say, you know, get curious. If somebody's referencing a particular word that you haven't heard before, just ask, what does that mean to them and why is it significant? At least that's what I try and do. And I'm really curious to hear others are using these terms. I've seen myself, I was asked recently, what do I think about the abbreviation of ND? And I think like all abbreviations, because you see that a lot in the social media commentary you know to our nd friends and most people are referencing neurodivergent there like all acronyms or like all shortage it's really important to make the assumption that your audience may not have come across the term first so going back and asking questions when you spot these things popping up can be really really helpful
0: That is such a good tip, Ms. Because I was thinking coming into this conversation, I just don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to get the language wrong. I just want to do this topic justice and I don't want to get the terminology wrong. So I love how you've articulated for us we've got neurodiversity, which sounds like it's really the umbrella term. And then within that, we've got different neurodivergences, and that plays out in different ways. So as we're looking at that, what's the most common neurodivergent profiles that we see in adults? Let me first circle
1: back to the idea of neurodiversity being an umbrella term. I think that is fair and reasonable. Another way of looking at it is neurodiversity is like a paradigm shift. So in the same way that positive psychology is a paradigm shift, to so look at the idea that psychology exists and mental health and well-being exists on a continuum, and neurodiversity looks at the same idea that our brains are different and biological logically speaking, we have variations in our population in the same way that there's biodiversity, right? So I like to think of neurodiversity as a term that explains like a different paradigm of looking at brain-based differences, which is then neurodivergent. Go back to your question around what are the most Common neurodivergent profiles, I am guessing that many of the listeners in your audience would be most familiar with autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. And then because I know you've got a lot of educators in your audience as well, probably what we now call in psychology specific learning disorders, which used to be known as dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, and Those are learning differences associated with reading, writing, math, and the way that somebody places their body in the world, so they're fine in their gross motor skills. But in terms of which ones are more common, that's a really interesting question. I tried to dive into the literature to see who's winning the stats race in the most popular neurodivergent profile. And it's almost an impossible question to answer, I think. First and foremost, you've got to read research that says the variance is anywhere between like 20% and 70%. Now, as a scientist, I go, that's way too big of a gap for me to comment on that academically. But I think that also speaks that our diagnostic processes in our research is really coming along. And often when you meet someone who has features of one neurodivergent profile, they've gone and attached themselves or been given lots of different labels. So it's not uncommon, for example, there to be both ADHD and autism given. In fact, 15, 70%, I know that's again, a wide gap of people with autism will also get an ADHD diagnosis and I've got some interesting papers I'm going to share with you because that reading is also really interesting but for me that's why it's so difficult to add to that question. I don't think there's probably a more common profile. There are probably more profiles that are more commonly recognized and better understood would be my answer. Autism definitely would be the first one that people think of or talk to me about when I share the term neurodivergent, they go, oh, you mean autistic? They're surprised when I say, yeah, and also ADHD. But once we start spreading the conversation out, I think people's minds start to expand a little bit further. The commonality between them all is that brain-based difference that really shows up and is evidenced from childhood. So this isn't something like a mental health condition where you can have sort of seasonally or periodically, although our neurodivergent profiles express themselves with features can definitely happen seasonally. We can talk about that as well, but it is that brain-based difference, differences in connectivity, executive functions, the way people see, perceive, and behave in the world across their social, emotional, and learning domains really makes those profiles different to neurotypical people, which are like percent.
0: So as we're thinking about this I'm sure listeners think there seems to be more and more adults diagnosed there feels like there's just as many adults being diagnosed as students at the moment I'm not sure if that's true or not just that sense of it seems to be more around. Yeah, and there is. And I think
1: that's another really interesting conversation. And when you dive into the reading, you'll see mixed opinions, mixed theories, mixed philosophies and perspectives. If you go back to the idea that neurodivergent profiles are lifelong, they have brain-based differences they don't just disappear they can seemingly emerge which is what seems to be happening you know we've got this adult population that for whatever reason lots of different reasons that we'll discuss today weren't identified at a younger age that's particularly true in our minority groups and for women which is where i'm really passionate about supporting that recognition and identification of our girls and women across neurodivergent profiles because the features show up differently i'm digressing a little bit but yes there's lots of reasons as to why there are more adults that are all of a sudden going hey to your point earlier, I had seen my kid go through this diagnostic process and now I'm seeing some of me in them and reflecting back and having intergenerational conversations around, is this was going on for me? Does this explain some of the shame that I've carried on? Does it explain some of those perfectionistic tendencies? Does it explain why I've always felt anxious in a room or why I didn't like loud noises or why I couldn't and the smell of, insert whatever it is, sensitivity. So we're getting better diagnostically at understanding how neurodivergent profiles show up across different aspects of the lifespan. We are getting better at sharing stories around particularly when neurodiverted profiles don't present in those sort of stereotypical ways and we're getting better at being okay with being different so when that happens when there's more equitable access to information education resources and support people are more willing to explore things because why wouldn't you it makes sense that we all want to understand ourselves and how we operate in the world and what our unique is so that we can use it to our advantage and get some support where we need to. So yeah, it's an interesting time to be watching that happen and to be
0: listening to other people share their stories too. For people like you and I, we get so excited to hear about this new research, people's stories and the excitement of we are all so different and oh, there's so much to learn and we get really, really down rabbit holes and all these different things. However, I know there are a lot of myths out there. Not everyone is so open and curious when it comes to this topic. What are some of the myths?
1: Yeah, look, one of the first comments I hear in our community when people start to share that they've had a diagnosis, particularly as an adult, is that there'll be, and I think oftentimes the intention is good from loved ones or from other people around, but we've all got a bit of time. You know, we're all a little bit for ADHD, forgetful or impulsive or, oh, yeah, you know, I I forgot to do that last week too, or I had my keys all the time too. And for me, that's a little bit of a a myth-busting opportunity to share that, yeah, we are all a little bit different. We've all got some of these features that come across and articulate in our neurodivergent profiles. What's really important to remember though, is that people who have gone through a rigorous process of getting a diagnosis as a neurodivergent person and or someone who is self-identifying because they've really gone down the rabbit hole and looked at how they show up in the world, there is a cluster of features that shows up across each of these profiles that significantly impacts somebody's way of being in a world that is really built for neurotypical people. So this idea that we're all a little bit like that or, you know, this is an over-diagnosis era or we're over-medicalizing or we're overstating neurodivergence, the numbers haven't actually shifted that much. We're still hovering around that 20% of people uh, represented that broader neurodivergent population. And I think that it does undermine people's differences in a way that isn't validating and isn't helpful? That's the first one that I noticed that shows up. Is it helpful to have a look at some others or have you got some thoughts on that one, Meg? Is it something that you've also heard around in your community?
0: Yeah, I hear that time and time again. Oh, that's, you know, we all do that. Or oh, that could be me too. And this is where the nuance comes in. This is also the compassionate, intelligent, wise person comes in and almost just shutting up when someone tells us their story and just listening and believing and not having to make it anything different But when we listen to other people's stories and really take it on, because what that person is sharing with us, they're trying to articulate something that is invisible. And so they're trying to make something that's really invisible and lifelong visible to someone who may have no comprehension of it. And that's a very complex task. So as the listener or the receiver, it's our job to deeply listen and try and understand what are these invisible feelings? forces that they're working against day in and day out. Yeah,
1: that is so beautifully said. I want to take that little snippet of yours and just spread it all over the world. That's brilliant. And actually I had a neurodivergent person share a great story of how this came up for them in the workplace. They'd been self-advocating for themselves and on behalf of some team members who didn't feel safe to disclose their own neurodivergence and there was a mixed bag, so there was some specific learning differences, dyslexia, there was ADHD in a particular group, and they were all bandying together in their own small team to request for a productivity tool to be able to be to bring together all of the other resources in the one space so that there wasn't all of these unnecessary mistakes or miscommunications happening and when they were going to their HR department and asking for budgets and positioning this as a reasonable adjustment in the workplace for people with disabilities the person who was doing the speaking on behalf of the group was sort of asked like we we all have difficulties pulling all of this information together you'll be okay just spend a little bit more time working together maybe you need to change your emails and good on this advocate you know, who was not only self-advocating, but for the group as well, who turned around and said, you know, for me, where I need to really put some runs on the board for your understanding is that I was coming to you in a wheelchair and explaining that I know you want me to be on level two for our meeting, but you don't currently have a lift. You only have stairs. Would you be questioning my ask for this adjustment? And the HR person just stood there and was like, well, oh, I don't know what you mean. And so I think there is again, there's this myth that somehow neurodivergent people are kind of making up. A lot of their struggles and using it as some kind of attention grabbing, you know, here I am, look at me kind of moment when the reality is, especially when it comes to trying to make some adjustments for our struggles, I say I should have shared, I am ADHD, so I can really resonate with a lot of what is shared in our community. But when we are trying to sort of self-advocate for those struggles, it is an invisible difference or impairment when it shows up in that way. And that's really difficult for people to get their head around. I guess the other thing to really remember, and you beautifully said, take the time to listen, to ask questions, Um, and to get curious and compassionate. The other thing to remember is that those of us who received a late diagnosis, and I fall into that category as well, there's been a lifetime often of masking, overcompensating, feeling embarrassed, wondering why we can't do all the things that everybody else seems like they can so easily do, wondering why we see the world differently, having to silence a lot of the time our perspectives and views. When someone is sharing that they see the world differently or that they have some additional needs or some features of neurodivergence, oftentimes one. One, they're looking for validation, which is really important. It's such a healthy part of the identity process. But two, they're checking in to see, is this going to be okay? Is it going to be safe to share my differences? You know, I'd like to live in a world where we don't have to have these labels. That so we can also, hey, this works really well for me and this doesn't. Can we talk about how we can make this work? There's plenty of tools that we can use to help each other out. But I think in the meantime, while that world is yet to be brought to life, labels can be really helpful. So yes, well said, man great coaching questions is just to lean in and ask more questions, you know, why are you sharing this part of yourself with me? What are you hoping that me knowing this part of you could be more helpful for? And what is it about your neurodivergence as well that you love? You know, what does work well for you? What would you not do without? That's another really beautiful question that can be added in to shine a light on some of those strengths or reflecting back to the person some of the strengths that they have to in a way that invites that holistic look at the person.
0: And it invites relationship with our colleagues, with the families we work with, with our leaders, with every community member to have understanding and the questions. And as you were speaking, what was coming to mind for me is as an adult getting a diagnosis later in life, I'm assuming there'd be a fair element of grief thinking about what could have been when I was younger if we had known what we know now, what may have been different. And And I'm sure that's another invisible load to carry. Yeah, for some,
1: that's definitely the case. I really like the saying, and I heard it first in the autistic community, but if you've met, and I'll say autism for that reason, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. And I think that's the same for all people, but particularly for neurodivergent people. And so I think everybody's journey of how they came about to get their diagnosis, what the reasons behind that were. Did somebody go and receive a diagnosis or access more information around the neurodivergent profile comes to that conclusion to self-identity for an identity purpose and or is it in the context of some real suffering and real struggle and what was their childhood like for me personally grief is probably an overstatement of my processing around my ADHD diagnosis but that's because I had a great childhood like I had a childhood where my parents both neurodivergent without realizing it who taught my sister and myself from a really young age if there was something we didn't know in the world then there must be a book on it so we were raised to be very curious you know I've got a cool type of ADHD so both hyperactive and inattentive which is why when I speak you'll hear kind of that static but that's got to do with my own executive function and getting my thoughts very very fast and how that works with working memory Processing speeds as well, but going back to my parents, the world was our oyster. I was able to be hyperactive because they directed that with every co-curricular that I wanted to sink my teeth into. You know, looking back, I was able to accommodate for some of the struggles I might have otherwise had. You know, I didn't. I was one of the first cohorts to go through where in Australia, where maths wasn't compulsory. It turns out I've also got dyscalculia, so it was really convenient that I just said I'm not doing maths. I was able to opt out for year eleven and twelve, but that was a massive controversy because I was also identified as gifted as a young person so to have the label of giftedness which is another neurodivergent profile by the way and then to say well i'm not doing maths at the time went really against societal norms. but i compensated for a lot of my executive function differences by immersing myself in the arts and doing really well at school and then i went into entrepreneurship i i've been self-employed i kind of weaved my way around my adhd without even realizing it so for me, the grief and loss is held from the perspective of I could have let go of some of those shame stories that have held me back along the way. If I had an understanding, I might not have done this that way, but it's not the depth. For other people where there's been significant shifts in their access to education, where I mean, we know within our neurodivergent population, for example, there are higher instances of educational disengagement and or people leave the formal education system earlier and that has all sorts of implications and or doesn't for later employment and later adult comes our community is also more vulnerable to trauma to abuse to difficult relationships to social isolation to mental health so I think everybody's journey is different and that's really important to recognize
0: What stands out to me is, as you just said then, everybody's journey is different, and this shared humanity that we all have, and really getting to know ourselves and this self-discovery path and as we're getting to know ourselves on a deeper level how can we get to know the people that we live and work with on a deeper level and move away from assuming everybody works like me or everybody should work like this like so much of our traditional educational paradigm has been everybody should be like this we should sit we should listen all of these things and really just wondering and marinating on could we be doing it differently. And that leads me to think, how does this impact on a person's well-being?
1: Yeah, I found some really cool facts that I want to share with you before I answer that question. Because I think when you know this about neurodivergent adults in particular, haven't got the same equivalent for children. But this is interesting. Let me pull it out for us. In the adults, when you think of it through this lens, it makes sense as to why neurodivergent impacts on well-being. So this paper I'm going to send you a link to as well so we can just have a look at it. But it was McDowell and colleagues and only a recent one, 2023. They took a really wide neurodivergent adult population in the workforce, and wanted to have a look at both the struggles and the strengths. It's a brilliant paper Judy Singer actually endorsed. I really encourage you to read it. Anyway, now that I've fan clubbed all over this paper, here's some stats. So 77% of neurodivergent people in this study reported difficulties looking after themselves mentally, 77%. That's as high. 70% struggled asking for help when it's needed. 64.5% struggle with managing boundaries at work or self-reported. And 67% reported struggling after looking after themselves physically. Now, I read that and as a psychologist, I go, to look after your well-being, you've got to know all of the aspects of well-being that come together to make for a happy, healthy, flourishing, functioning, joyous meaningful life, right? You've got to know how to cook and prepare really good, healthy, nutritious foods. You've got to be able to manage your sleep schedule. You've got to be able to manage your organization and your time and your motivation to go and do exercise when you might not want to or to get out in the sunshine. Social connection is really important. And so I look at our neurodivergent population and I look at some of the impairments and the difficulties that their brain-based differences bring into their way of seeing the world. Now, it's not fair to say that For example, those who have social communication differences therefore don't have good connections. We know that's not true. But if you look at that cluster of self-report in terms of what do I as a neurodivergent person feel comfortable endorsing that I struggle with, it makes sense that we see more mental health comorbidities in the neurodivergent population compared with our neurotypical people. So I think that's really important to think about from a systems-based holistic perspective, because up until recently, the attitude, particularly within the medical community has been, oh, you're a neurodivergent person. Let me dump all of these neurotypical norms and assumptions on what makes for a good and meaningful life onto you and put you through a dozen therapies so that you can learn how to be normal. That's really not helpful, especially because we know that, you know, not mental illness necessarily, but mental ill health, if you like, and certainly well-being within the neurodivergent community masking is one of the things that really increases somebody's risk a propensity to struggle with their mental health masking and camouflaging is i as a neurodivergent person can see that the way i see and behave and act in the world isn't going to be well received so i silence myself or i come up with a compensatory strategy or i perform or i hide i behave in a way that is not like me so when we see high masking happening and high camouflaging happening we see that correlates with poor well-being or at times mental ill health. So I think that's really important to be thinking about, particularly if we're translating that then into a school environment where we may have neurodivergent staff, definitely neurodivergent parents and people within our community, is to think about the practical ways that we can support people with their well-being journeys. Certainly there's always a place for therapy, underplaying that one day at all, but some of those practical solutions like how can we shape up and change and make more inclusive our communication pathways so that we remove some of those barriers you know in the design world we talk about well what's the user experience like so if you think about your parent is a user of your media and communications at school your teacher is a user of your communication tools whether that be your learning system management tools or, or whatever it is to communicate how can you change the experience so that we're removing some of those barriers that will otherwise increase that propensity for well-being take a decline towards the languaging space on the flip side of that neurodivergent people who are in an environment that is inclusive that can play to their strengths that can adjust the environment around them they're not having to mask they're not having to compensate they're not burning out from over stimulation, sensory, you know, they do really, really well. We've got a lot of thriving neurodivergent people who are wildly successful and brilliantly creative and sharing their unique of seeing the world, the interests, the skills and their strengths with the world in a way that's making some great solutions. So again, you said it earlier, it comes back to us all allowing the space and creating the space in a very intentional way, feels safe to share what works well for me and what I need to have more of and what gets in the way. What are some of the obstacles for me being at my best and creating that environment and a culture, especially in schools, where people can feel more confident and more capable to be able to ask help. So I think hitting those targets in terms of what can we do with this information, because I don't like to say, yeah, well-being is a problem in our population, I don't then say, well, here's the solution. I think it's a little simplistic to say yes, we have mental illness, therefore make a mental illness adjustment. It's like, yeah, but look at some of what people are asking for help with, helping to look after yourself, give them access to information, access to resources, access to support. You know, asking for help when needed. Don't wait for someone to come to you. Ask them. I noticed you, were, I don't know what it is, maybe late to meetings, whether that's a problem or not a problem, but I'm just curious, you know, what's going on for you? How can I help? Do we need to change it? Do we need to have breaks? Approach the neurodivergent person rather than assuming they can always self-advocate those boundaries at work. Get really curious about well, what are we asking about teachers in particular? Or you and I, we could... Go on about this for days. We're asking so much of our teachers in the classroom, in their lunch breaks, outside of school, in their holiday periods, again using air quotes, can we help put some non-negotiable boundaries in place so that individuals don't always have to do that themselves? They would be the way that I would like to see us approach this idea of well-being, particularly how it impacts our neurodivergent adult in a workplace environment.
0: And it's really moving towards this more precise way of well-being instead of feeling like everybody has to do everything. Okay, we're going to do mindfulness now. Everybody do mindfulness and more precision. What works for you, Maz? What works for you, Meg? Now we know this information as a team, what can we do together?
1: Yeah. And as you said, that actually, Meg, I know you and I are are big fans of appreciative inquiry. And so that's that sort of strengths-based approach to change, if you like, but also to be able to design solutions. So when it comes to culture, like you said, you know, what's already working well? I mean, if somebody came into, I wish I could turn my camera for you right now, hold it up for those who are watching, but on my desk, because when I have conversations like this, particularly if I'm needing to do a lot of listening and processing, This bad boy comes with me so I can fidget. This bad boy comes with me if I need to be more discreet. It's a smaller fidget. So you'll see on my desk what you'll see in a classroom of inclusive teachers who facilitate access to different ways of being in the environment for neurodivergent children. The same is the case often times for adults we might be better at not having to do it. I, I don't have to sit and fidget, but sometimes I do. Sometimes my leg will be stimming. For those who aren't familiar with that language, it's like you'll see my leg jolting up and down, like boing, 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 boing. If you've ever sat with an ADHD hyperactive child, you'll see the same thing. It's like, we just can't always sit still. So getting curious around that thing. Eh? Maz, I noticed that your leg was going off. Is everything cool? Like Do you want to take a walk? Do you want to have a glass of water? Provided this psychological safety where that's okay. You're not going to name and shame the person and, or maybe have a conversation with them afterwards. Is it okay if if I spot these things, if I check in with you afterwards, there's some really great questions to be asking. But to your point, it's just comes back to being curious, doesn't it? And being compassionate and being willing to take the information that we are given from somebody else about their unique way of being in the world and, and doing something with it. There is nothing worse as a minority person, and I say that broadly, I think, to disclose something that is new to somebody else and misunderstood and misrepresented a lot of the time and have somebody go, okay, yeah, well, let me look into what we can do about that. And then to never hear back. That's one of the most invalidating experiences that we can have a neurodivergent or a minority person go through. And so always following up. And if for whatever reason that's outside of your control as a person who does follow up, still circling back and saying, I just want to let you know that conversation we had, that meant a lot to me. I haven't yet found a solution. I'm on it. And if you have any solutions or any thoughts, I just want to keep the door open for the conversation to keep going. Because change does take time. We can acknowledge that it's about transparency, I think. It's about human connection and it's about seeing each other as people rather than productivity tools sometimes in workplaces too, I think.
0: Yes, and unique people with our own strengths our own things that we find challenging and also really highlighting what you said today is 20%. So if you think of 20% of your staff room, 20% of your classroom, 20% of the parents who are hovering out the school gates, that's a large number that we're talking about. And so as we go through this year, what can we do to be supporting the humans in our systems in more inclusive ways? Yeah, great question. And to that
1: 20% thing, I think it's also really important to reflect on. We know that neurodivergent people tend to move out into the regional areas more so. So you're going to find that there's a higher instance of neurodivergent people in regional areas, in country areas, oftentimes in city city schools. We know also in terms of staff and, and educators that different of education, attract different brain types, that just kind of makes sense, right? Like your arts department and your PE department, they went into those interests for a reason. So depending on what your school's emphasis is on, uh, the sciences for example, you, you know, think about the different industries and where those strengths show up and where neurodivergence, when we look at it more holistically, can be really helpful. Educators, often, some are generalists, but they often tend to have a specific interest in a particular industry and or area. That's been really beneficial. That means they can now share that wisdom and that knowledge with our next generation. I, I haven't seen any stats around this, but it'll be interesting to see if there is any more specific research done in education around where neurodiversity is popping up. There are just some things to think about. So back to your question of how can we create more inclusive learning environments? And again, we're getting pretty good at recognizing what works well for kids in the classrooms and I I would like to see that translated across for our teachers as well. I'd also like to see brought into our education system more of what we're seeing happen in other industries. So for example in other industries there are some things that we can't necessarily change as educators in a classroom. Oftentimes we need to be in a classroom but in a different industry you know, a neurodivergent employee or staff member might, for example, ask for a reasonable adjustment that they can have sort of those sensory down days where they have time with they will to from home rather than in the work environment. So having a look, if you've got a neurodivergent staff member who is seeming a bit more frazzled, a little bit more overwhelmed, who's either overproducing in their workload or underperforming at times, checking in, because sometimes that can be an instance or, or a little bit of a red flag around either burnout or overwhelm or an extra need for support. And I think that's where we could be leveraging some more of our flexi hours um, with our teachers and our educators. I'm looking at how can we staff an already under-resourced system. I really want to acknowledge that in a more human-centric way. So how can we draw on, again, this is Matt's going wild here, mate, so bear with me, but how can we draw on our community to kind of plug in the gaps to help educate the next generation so we're not relying heavily and we give our teachers a bit of downtime. Teachers are on oftentimes 24-7. For a neurodiversion person, that can be really challenging. They're noisy classrooms. How are the lights in your classrooms, for example? Have your teachers got access to nature outside where they can have downtime? Are you pushing them into meetings in their lunch break when actually what they really need to do is regulate their nervous systems? So I think inclusive workplaces, the staff rooms and, and schools, if you like, education facilities, they consider neurodivergent adults do a good job of first and foremost looking at what we're doing well for kids and what needs to happen for kids and i'd refer you also to inclusion ed that are doing fantastic research up in qut and have got fantastic resources for schools but then also looking to other industries and saying okay well we might need to tweak that one because it's not necessarily realistic for our schools but we bring more of that into here know what's working well teachers are so brilliant oftentimes at researching and taking that research to make it applicable so lean in on the people right in your culture and ask them how can we do this differently be open to play be open to exploring and creating something that works for your culture that's come from people so that bottom-up approach rather than top-down tokenistic teacher inclusion policies that i hate to see ask your people so else. it goes back to that you know appreciative inquiry we were saying earlier and just getting curious, getting to know your people
0: Oh, Maz, you have given us so much to think about. We have just scratched the surface today and my head is spinning with ways that we can really create schools that thrive on the difference, that embrace the difference, and how fun for our young people to be emerged in those environments. To wrap up this conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Go for it. I am inspired by... Firstly, purpose-driven
1: humans like yourself who take their incredible wisdom, knowledge and their love of learning and their passion to do good in the world and scale solutions. So there's that. But secondly, I'm also really inspired by the hybrid models in education that we're seeing pop up globally, particularly in the States. And I'm really curious to look into that. I think they're going to be fantastic, particularly for our neurodivergent population and for kiddos and adults who don't necessarily fit that linear path of education. So I'm inspired by both those things at the moment.
0: When life feels hard? When life feels
1: hard, I remind myself that things can be two things at the same time, that I can be struggling and suffering and, and really finding it difficult to get up and go. And I can remember that I've done hard things before and there's always a book on it, like Mom and Judd would say, and I'm surrounded by other people, that if I access my courage, I can ask for help and support from.
0: An underrated skill is? first thing that
1: comes to mind is unicycling, just because one, that is like such a representation of an ADHD brain right now. So unicycling is such an underrated skill because how resourceful if we could all get around on this funky mode of transport that only needs one wheel, one stick, and also allows us to access our mindful balancing. No, but seriously, underrated skill. Divergent thinking, which is a skill I think that our neurodivergent population really brings to the table. And I'd love to see celebrated more and utilized for wicked solutions to wicked problems.
0: And I am looking forward to.
1: I'm looking forward to seeing what happens when we get the balance or the intersection of technology and human capabilities right. And specifically how that relates, I guess, to my area of interest around what AI going to do? What are our emerging brain imaging technologies, for example, going to do in helping us to really understand those biological underpinnings of brain-based differences and, I guess, the basis and a lot about unnecessary suffering with mental illness, and then how can we use our human capabilities to design really beautiful, people-centric, compassionate solutions so that people can reach their full potential.
0: Maz, thank you for the work that you are doing, your ferocious curiosity and so much hope that you're bringing to people in their homes, in their workplaces to see what is really possible when we tap into this uniquely human experience and remember our shared humanity. So thank you for the work that you are doing and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast today. Thank you, Meg. I'm gonna hold those beautiful words close to my heart.
1: I really appreciate them. They meant a lot to me. And thank you for all of the work you're doing to put these stories and this information out to the world. It's very well received.
0: To learn more about Maz and the incredible work she is doing to unlock human potential in families, schools and organizations, see the show notes for more details. In this great big sea of podcasting, the School of Wellbeing is a little fish. So if you find value in these conversations and would like more teachers to be tuning in, here are four ways you can support the show. Subscribe to the show on your podcast app, share this episode with a colleague, leave a five-star rating or write a short review. Honestly, it doesn't have to be a thought-out and profound review. It could be as simple as love it, thank you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school staff thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 116. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and until next time, take care and take deliberate action.